This is our class, Who Am I? How Your True Identity Changes Everything. Uh, so these, this week, the following week, and then the final week um, will be a little bit different. So the past series of weeks, we've been thinking about who we are in Christ, specific aspects of our identity in Christ. Uh, tonight, we'll be covering who I am not. <laughs> so maybe things we're tempted to use to identify ourselves and how our identity in Christ trumps those things, which is awesome. Uh, and then uh, next week, we're going to think about how this sort of changes the way we view life and do life and that. And then the final week, we're think, we'll think about how we engage a culture that has sort of lost its identity and doesn't understand uh, because they have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, as we all did at one point. So anyway, uh, we'll be looking at that in, in three weeks. So anyway, tonight, uh, as we get started, I do want to review these, as I have every week, but anyway, good to do it tonight because we're thinking about how our identity in Christ sort of trumps these other ways we might identify ourselves. So first of all, we talked about our humanity. We're made by God, broken by sin, loved by God, and if we trust in the Lord Jesus as Savior, we are then in Christ, united to Christ, which is this incredibly amazing theological concept that we don't fully have our minds wrapped around, but somehow God unites us to his son. Yep, that's amazing. So in Christ, then, I am loved like the son, eternally, infinitely, perfectly. I'm justified. That means Jesus takes my sin and I receive God's righteousness. I am adopted. That means I am a child of God with all the rights and privileges of his son. I'm born again. God has imparted his life to me, new, spiritual, eternal life. I am favored. I stand completely in God's grace. I'm forgiven. That means my sin debt is canceled and my sins are sent away. They're gone. I'm reconciled. God gives me peace with him. There's nothing between us, no hindrance to our relationship. I am redeemed, purchased out of slavery to sin to serve Christ. I have a new master. I am a member of his body with grace from him to do my part for his glory, to participate in the life of the church. I have a role to play. I'm a citizen of his kingdom, living as an ambassador in a foreign land, uh, as an ambassador of Christ, a minister of reconciliation. I'm a light bearer. God's glory in my heart by God's spirit shines as a light in this dark world. And finally, as we covered last week, I'm changing into his image. God's spirit uses his word to grow me. I'm a work in progress, which means as the Lord is patient with me, so should I be patient with my brothers and sisters who are also works in progress. All right, so that's where we've been over the past few weeks. And tonight we think about, in Christ, I am not. Well, maybe what I should say is, I am not merely. Okay, so some of these things are part of our current experience, but they are not as important as who we are in Christ. So that's kind of the the idea we're trying to build here. It's not that these things aren't part of our lives at all. Certainly they are. But who we are in Christ is far more important and, and very much trumps these things, okay? All right, so first off, I am not my past failures. I am not my past failures. 
Uh, I brought this one up because oftentimes people, something big and bad will happen in their lives and they can sort of define the rest of their existence by that failure or multiple failures. Uh, and, and so that becomes a part of who they are. Um, and so we want to think biblically about what, what our identity in Christ does to our past failures. Kind of an interesting discussion is um, the number of heroes in the Bible. Actually, this is fun. Tonight is uh, Bible, biblical caricature night. So the kids are all dressed up as different Bible characters. Uh, and so what's interesting about Bible characters is many of the heroes of the Bible, other than Jesus, uh, have major failures in their lives. Okay, so see if you can think of some examples with me. Uh, can you name a Bible character, a Bible hero even, that has a major failure in his or her track record? Yeah. David. Okay, what was David's failure? Adulterer, a murderer. Yeah. Just name a few. Yeah, there you go. There's some two big ones right there. Yeah, adulterer, murderer. Right. King David. Yeah, okay. Samson. Samson. There you go. Yeah, what was his failure? Many. Many. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we will list them all. That's wise. <laughs> Yeah, good. Right, good. What? Else? Who else? Yeah, Jacob. Yep. Liar. There you go. Mm-hmm. Who else? Adam. Yeah, he <laughs> just start right at the beginning. Yeah, he really, he really messed things up for us, didn't he? Oh man. Yeah, Linda. Moses was a murderer. Right. Yeah, Titus. Same one. Yeah. Wow. Thinking on the same page there. Good. Who else? Abraham. Yep, wasn't patient with the provision of Isaac. Yeah, so went went about it his own way. Can you think of another example from Abraham's life? He lied. Yeah, he he basically gave up his wife, lied about it so that he could spare his life. Yeah, great. (laughs) Okay. Can you think of any others? Elijah was a prophet. No, it's fine. Okay, yeah, so he went through a period of discouragement. Yeah, so, yeah, certainly a low point in his life, right? Yeah, Rebecca? Yeah, yeah, Levi and Simeon destroying Shechem. Good. Yeah. Peter, we just heard about this one in church a few weeks ago, right? Denied the Savior three times, yeah. 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 Lots, yes, good. Yeah, well, the, it's kind of crazy. The list can go on and on, can't it, right? And I have others that we didn't even mention. Noah dishonored himself with drunkenness. Uh, Jacob's sons, the, the namesakes of the tribe of Israel, sold their brother into slavery and, you know, basically left him for dead. Um, Let's see, Aaron, right, the co-leader of Israel, uh, led the people into idol worship. Uh, Rahab, the prostitute. Uh, we mentioned Peter, Paul, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, calls himself a blasphemer and a murderer, right? So um, the point is, these things are, yes, part of their past, but we have a God who redeems. Isn't that cool? And so God used all of these individuals uh, for incredible good as well, even above and beyond their flaws. So just a couple things we'll point out as we think about them. First of all, um, 
Actually, let me hand out a couple passages here. Uh, Psalm 32, verse 1, 5, and 10, 11. So basically just a few portions of Psalm 32. So be willing to read that. Jennifer Tylevsky, thank you. First uh, Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Be willing to read those. Titus, thank you. Uh, let's see, I'll do the First Timothy 1, Romans 8, 1. Who would go to that one for us? Raleigh, thank you. All right. Uh, so starting with Psalm 32. Okay, so Psalm 32 is a fun, fun study. It's about the joy of God's forgiveness. So it starts off, happy is the one, blessed is the one, makarios, right? Blessed is the one who rejoices or who's forgiven by God. And uh, it talks about how David felt bad in his sin. And then finally, when he confessed it, the Lord forgave him. And then it closes the whole psalm by reminding us that blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. And in the context, the Lord's forgiveness because then they're upright and they have joy. So uh, the lesson we learn about God is that He forgives. He forgives. We confess our iniquities to Him, and God forgives. There's something else He does with that forgiveness, and so I think it was Titus, was 1 Corinthians 6. Yes. Okay, so summarized, God cleanses. I just want you to notice the significance of that phrase, such were some of you. Meaning, when he says, the people who do these things do not inherit the kingdom of God, he's saying that to people who had done those things. So God's cleansing in Christ trumps our past action. You tracking with that? So the readers, he's saying, you are going to inherit the kingdom of God because you've been cleansed, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, and that trumps your past failures, right? So the crazy part is, all people who will be in the kingdom, except for Jesus, were at one point unworthy of the kingdom and only made so by his cleansing, right? So it's just a beautiful picture. My past failures are not my not what defines me. It's what Christ has done in his forgiveness and cleansing. So um, the Apostle Paul testifies about this in his own life uh, in 1 Timothy um, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. So let me read those for you. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although... I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. 
This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So the Apostle Paul, in this long uh, argument here is basically explaining he was forgiven and now he's become a testimony of God's mercy and forgiveness to those who will believe. You're not beyond saving is sort of the, the testimony of Paul here. And so when God not only forgives and cleanses, but he makes us a testament to his mercy and redemption. Um, and so our failures are actually changed into testimonies for God's glory. Not that the act itself was good, but that God's mercy is rich and his patience is enduring. And so that's what Paul's failures in his past began to proclaim. You know, it's like scars that tell a story. Um, the, the actual event that caused the scars, not a positive thing. But the story they tell, because it reminds us of what Jesus did, suddenly becomes this testimony of God's mercy and redemption. So God even redeems our past failures. Isn't that incredible? Um, so they don't like disappear, but they change. They change. Um, and our identity in Christ trumps them and renews what they mean in our lives. They become testimonies for His glory. God saved even me, the chief of sinners, Paul says. Okay, Romans 8, 1. Who had that one? Raleigh. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So never again for our past actions will we experience condemnation from God. It just won't happen. Now this is really crucial. I put a little chart in your notes for you. Uh, trying to help determine the difference between conviction and condemnation. Because we do know that the Spirit does yearn in us to draw us back to God. When I sin, this is James 4, talks about this, for instance. When I sin, the Spirit seeks to draw me back to God, to turn back to Him. So we, we call that conviction. He helps me to see my sin. That's different from condemnation. So this chart helps to differentiate them. Obviously, one is from the Holy Spirit. That's conviction. Condemnation is from either Satan accusing me before the Father's throne, or I can condemn myself, right? I, I don't need Satan's help to do that. I can pile the guilt back on myself uh, if I choose to do that. Next, conviction is to be expected for those who are in Christ. God's doing a work in me. I, like, like we learned last week, I'm a work in progress. So I should expect to be convicted of my sin, to see things that I didn't see before as God opens my eyes to them. Condemnation is non-existent for those who are in Christ, so God will not condemn me. That's a beautiful truth. It's to quote that one to myself a lot. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Next, based on your identity in Christ, conviction says you are a child of God, therefore you should not live this way. So it starts with who I am in Christ. And conviction says, because I'm united to Christ, I shouldn't be living this way in my life. Condemnation degrades your identity in Christ. 
it tells us, no, you aren't worthy to be in Christ. Uh, In fact, maybe you aren't, right? So that's kind of the voice of condemnation. Conviction says, no, you are in Christ, so that's why you shouldn't live this way. Okay, next, it draws you to the Lord. Conviction, it's the spirit yearning in me, drawing me to God, James 4, 5. You sinned, but Christ paid for that sin. God loves you, so confess it and return to him. Condemnation, on the other hand, is when I feel pushed away from God. That's not God. God's not doing that. Uh, the, the voice of condemnation says, you're a failure, give up. God can't forgive you this many times. Not true. And then finally, conviction turns into joy and gratitude the moment sin is confessed to God. I trust his promise. And so when I confess, I can rejoice because I know the conviction has led to confession and restoration and I'm cleansed and I'm forgiven and there's joy in that. Condemnation keeps coming up over and over again, even after confession. So those things might help you recognize the difference in pattern and to sense whether that thing in your life is more like condemnation or more like God's conviction. And a really easy way to tell is to confess it to the Lord. And if it's done and gone, you trust his forgiveness, then there you go. It's done and gone. (laughs) If it keeps coming up, it's your own condemnation. Trust the Lord's forgiveness. So, my past failures change in these ways because I am in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? And they actually become stories of God's redemption, stories for His glory. Okay, on the flip side of that, I am not my past achievements. So, these are like the high points in my life. We tend to like to define ourselves by these. Well, have I told you what I've done for the Lord? I've done this, and for this many years I did this, and boy, we like to really think back on the achievements that we've gained, and we have to guard our hearts against this. Again, the Apostle Paul comes to our aid in Philippians chapter 3. This time, he's talking a little bit about the things that could be considered accolades in his life, and if you uh, look there in the text... He lists a few things in verses 4 and following. He says, Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I mean, talk about an interesting phrase from Paul. You think you can be confident in your human achievements? I can be more confident in my human achievements. Then he begins to list them. Circumcised the eighth day, which is just, just according to ritual laws. So that's the idea there. Uh, of the stock of Israel, so he's a true Israelite, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, so he kept it perfectly, concerning zeal, he was willing to persecute the church in order to be zealous for God, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. I mean, talk about some mountain peaks in a human life, and yet what does he say in verse 7? But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Okay, so uh, verse 8, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So your first bullet point there, the value of Christ surpasses the value of our past achievements. They just kind of fade in the distance. They don't matter. But Paul says, look, they're, they're loss. In fact, those things didn't help me know Christ more. So they're lost. I mean, they're, they're, they're worthless. They, 
They didn't propel me towards Christ, so they are of no value to me any longer. In fact, you could surmise from verse 8, what Paul's saying is that even clinging to past achievements could hinder me from knowing more of Christ. He says, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And then at the end of the verse, count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. It's not till he's willing to let go of those past accolades that he's more free to pursue Christ. It's really interesting. Sometimes clinging to our past achievements hinders us from running after Christ. That's sort of what Paul's saying here. So instead, I boast in Christ's righteousness received by faith, not my own righteousness. This is verse 9. And to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So our past achievements, why are they so troublesome? Because they start me down the path thinking that I did some good, (laughs) right? I'm worth something to the Lord. Look what I have to offer him. Paul's saying, no, that's that's not where righteousness comes from. That's the very message of the gospel. My righteousness is filthy rags, and I'm dead in my sin. It's only when I trust in Christ that I'm given, I'm justified, I'm given God's righteousness. Then I can pursue Christ. So, um, just a beautiful picture of how the gospel changes the way we view our past achievements. Um, We don't boast in those things, we boast in Christ. And so, in 10 through 16, he begins to talk about his new pursuit. It's not new mountaintop experiences. It's not new achievements. He's just after Jesus. He presses towards the goal of this upward call when he will be with Christ. And every day he lives till that point is for Christ, to serve him. So this is his, that's his new mountaintop experience, is live for Jesus. And just, he presses on towards that goal. So, Uh, Our identity in Christ completely changes the way we look at achievements. Next, I am not my desires, not my desires. This is a big one, especially in our world today, uh, that what we want must be speaking to us about who we are, right? That our desires are written in our DNA. Um, Certain propensities may or may not be, sure, you know, you can make that argument, but uh, we learn in Scripture very clearly that desires uh, are shapeable, they're changeable, they're adjustable. So a few facets about our desires. Let me um, distribute a few verses here, and then we'll look at these. Who would do Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17? Rod, thank you. Uh, who would do Galatians 5, 24 through 25? Kevin, thank you. Romans 13, 14. Dell, thank you. Uh, we can't do all of these. They're all really good, though, by the way. Um, let's see. 
How about Psalm 37.4? Who would do that one for us? Okay, Melissa, thank you. And James 1.17. Okay, Nancy, thank you. All right, there we go. So let's think about how our desires are not primarily who we are and how our identity in Christ trumps those things. First, Galatians 5, 16, and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Okay, so while our sin nature is present, we will have evil, broken desires, right? And it just helps to acknowledge that. Um, If I have God's Spirit in me, there's a war going on. There's the sinful desires of my flesh, and then there's the will, the desires of God's Spirit in me, and they're contrary to one another. One, the flesh, is serving me, and the Spirit is serving God, doing what is good. Uh, And so as long as my sin nature is present, we will have evil and broken desires. What I mean by broken is um, sometimes a good desire that God has given even is twisted. Uh, So it's about me or it's too strong or, right? So that's kind of what I mean by broken. Um, It's maybe sourced in uh, the way God created us. For instance, eating would be a fine example, right? A desire to eat food. Well, that's a good thing, okay? Um, But it can be broken. It can be too strong or not strong enough or just all about me or so on and so forth. So both evil and broken because of the presence of my flesh. So that shouldn't surprise us. Those desires will be there, okay? Um, And so, again, that doesn't define who I am. In fact, as we've learned about being in Christ, uh, we have power to say no to those things. So Galatians 5, 24 through 25, who had that one? And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Okay, so he's drawing us back to our salvation Kind of like Romans 6, where we died with Christ, meaning our old man, you know, it's kind of that wording in Romans 6 where he says, reckon yourself to be dead to sin. Kind of the same idea here. He's like, look, your old man's been crucified. Now you live in the Spirit, so why would you not also walk in the Spirit? Meaning, you can say no to your flesh and yes to God's Spirit. You have that power because you're in Christ. And so that's super encouraging. Yes, there is this battle between my fleshly desires and the Spirit's desires, but by Christ's strength, I can deny my sinful desires. And it's this battle that gives us, you know, the strange uh, experiences like Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. You ever read Romans 7? It's really an interesting chapter as he describes how on the one hand in his mind he has the will to do this thing that he knows God wants him to do, but he doesn't have the strength in his flesh to do that thing. In fact, he finds himself doing this thing that he didn't want to do. (laughs) And it's evil and it's sin. And so he's just talking about this back and forth and it's really hopeful at the end because he says, who will redeem me from this body of death? And then he turns glory to Christ. The Lord will redeem me. Uh, from this. So, super encouraging. That battle we face, though, 
often giving into the flesh, but power to say yes to God's Spirit. Uh, okay, Romans thirteen fourteen. Who had that one? Dell. Yes, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh. I can walk in ongoing victory over my sinful desires. So as I become aware of the temptations of my heart, the propensities of my fleshly desires, I can begin to cut certain things out of my life that make no provision for the flesh, right? So kind of avoiding those areas of temptation that I know are a challenge for me. And that helps me to put on Christ and helps me to walk in ongoing victory over my sinful desires. So it really is possible to have victory over our desires, to say no to those things. And I believe, here's a key part, I believe that God begins to change our desires. So maybe think of it this way, the, the, the voice of our flesh grows quieter, or our ability to say yes to God's Spirit grows stronger the more we walk in the Spirit. And so the draw towards old temptation begins to weaken as we experience victory. It really does change. God begins to reshape what we want. I think he's sort of built that into worship. What worship is, is this process of us acknowledging that God is desirable. And as we do that, it begins to change what we desire. So we want more of him. It's like... um, yeah, anyway, I'll give another example in a moment. Let's read our two verses and then we'll think more about it. Psalm 37, 4. Right, so, um, yeah, this is not like delight in the Lord and he'll give you whatever you want, right? It's delight in the Lord and you'll find he is what you want. <laughs> right? We, as we delight in him, we realize, oh, he's the desire of my heart. And he meets all my needs, and I'm satisfied in him. Cool. (laughs) And, yeah, pretty fun. So he begins to reshape uh, the things that my heart longed for back to what they should have been in the beginning. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about this concept as well, though we won't read that. Psalm 145 is about God's provision. It says, you open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. That's so cool. Uh, Psalm 36, 8, uh, those who fear, those who trust in the Lord, it says you give them drink. No, no, no. Uh, they, are satis- they, are, they are abundantly satisfied in the fullness of your house. You give them drink from the river of your pleasures. So again, just about the satisfaction we find in God. James 1, 17, who had that one? Nancy. Yes. There's no variance, no shadow of turning. Every good gift and every perfect gift. That means if something good is going to be present in my life, it must come from God and only from God. Pretty cool. He provides, He satisfies. And so we find our delight in Him. So God reshapes and satisfies my desires. And there's such confidence in this. I can freely and happily say no to my flesh 
because I know that God has everything I need and is the satisfaction for my soul. And he does reshape our desires. All right, probably enough said there. We got to keep moving. My feelings. I am not my feelings. I have feelings. They do not define me. We'll talk about this in two weeks. This is one of the big upside-down factors of our world today. Um, we, we uh, as a culture, have begun to define ourselves by what we feel. I was reading a book called Untangling Emotions. So just listen to some of these quotes about our culture today. According to our culture, what you feel is the most important thing about you. The highest good our culture seeks for living, breathing individuals is to have good feelings, to feel good. And a problem with one's feelings is your biggest problem. That means the greatest harm you can do to someone is not to listen to, give space for, and affirm what that individual feels is needed to feel the way he or she wants to feel. Hence, the extreme value placed on authenticity, the embrace of sexuality as the core of human identity, the emphasis on instilling self-esteem. Even in the church, we can begin to uh, um, orbit around our feelings. We uh, elevate our emotional experience to the peak of Sunday morning worship. The goal of the sermon is to feel deeply convicted or inspired. The goal of the music is to feel a rush of ecstasy or thanksgiving. The goal of the coffee time is to feel connected and included. So that's one extreme, is that we define ourselves by our feelings and suddenly our whole world revolves around how I'm feeling. And everything we do and go and say and everything is just is feel remedy, right? Help me feel better. Well, the, the other pitfall is to completely bottle up and ignore our emotions, which is also common in a variety of circles as well, uh, that emotions are completely sin, and so they should be ignored and cut off and done, done away with somehow. I don't know how that works, but anyway. Um, so that's kind of another pitfall here. Uh, if you're looking to read more about that, I'd encourage you towards a book called Untangling Emotions. It's excellent. We have it on our library shelf in the back. Uh, but they propose the following solution. Engage your emotions. Okay? Engage your emotions with God is the, the full statement of it. Engage your emotions with God. Uh, so here's a few uh, bullet points from uh, their outline. First, identify the emotion with God. And they give the example of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, verses 38 through 39, where we read the following. Uh, And Jesus took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed. Right? So here, Jesus is experiencing emotion, not a sin, right? He experienced emotion. Where does he go? He goes to his Father. So he, he uh, identifies what he's feeling. He even says it out loud. I am sorrowful. He acknowledges what he's feeling. Sometimes in our emotions, just to step back and acknowledge that I'm emotional is really helpful. 
Here's what I'm feeling right now. I'm discouraged. I'm angry. I'm etc. We can sort of step back from what we're feeling and view it a little more objectively and go to the Lord for help to begin to process that just like our Lord did. So that leads to the next one. Examine the emotion with God's help. Questions like, why am I feeling this? What am I reacting to? What is hi- why is this hitting me so hard? Big surprise, emotions communicate things about ourselves. They help us to know what's going on in our hearts. So if anger's coming out here, there's anger in my heart. And the question is, why? What has made me angry? Is it possible some really slim occasion that I'm just righteously angry that God's name has been defiled in this scenario? Well, yes, that's possible. But there's probably something else going on in my heart. So I begin to evaluate. Yes? I heard anger is an always second emotion. You always feel something before it. So it's fear. Um, anxiety, anxiety. Discontentment. Sure, yeah. That's very possible. I don't know if that... Can't really say whether that's a rule or not. But yeah, I mean, that's very possible to search for what else is going on in my heart along with the anger. So begin to examine it. Evaluate the emotion by God's word. So here's just a great question. Is this emotion compelled by God's spirit in me, right? Does this look like the fruit of the spirit as it's coming out? (laughs) Or is this emotion some mixture of God's spirit in my flesh. And I'm seeing a lot of the fruit of the flesh coming out in this. Or is this entirely my flesh, just angry because my toes was, were stepped on or whatever. So um, begin to evaluate it by God's word. What does God say about what I'm seeing in my life? And then act according to God's will. So Jesus' prayer here in Matthew 26 leads to exactly that. He expresses to God, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but yours be done. And this is where we end as we engage our emotions with God. Lord, I want to please you. So I need to do something now, and I want to please you. I submit. Help me to please you. And so our emotions actually can help us understand what's going on in our hearts and to live even better for God's glory. And then finally, to cultivate spiritual emotions. And here we have verses like Ephesians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That means by God's Spirit, I have the power to choose joy always. So I can cultivate godly emotions. Gratitude is another one that comes up just a couple of verses later in, in Ephesians chapter 4. Or Ephes- uh, excuse me, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 as I pray with thanksgiving. Ephesians 4 talks about some uh, emotions that I'm to put off. Anger, wrath, clamor, malice, evil speaking. Those things are to be put off. And I put on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. So again, God has given me power to cultivate um, spiritual emotions, God-honoring emotions. Finally, sorry, we're a little rushed here. I am not my body. I am in a body. We are embodied, okay? So that's important. But in Christ, I am more than just my body. So a few things that we learn from our bodies. First, my body reminds me to give thanks to my creator. Psalm 139. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And so my body ought to remind me to give thanks to my creator. Secondly, my body reminds me of my dependence upon God. 
really fun story. We can talk again about Moses tonight. Uh, God has given Moses a task in Exodus 4, and Moses comes back and says, oh, but I can't speak right. (laughs) And God has this really interesting um, correction for him. He says, Moses, who do you think made the mouth? (laughs) He's like asking Moses these questions. God's like, I made all these things. I know you can't speak right. I'm going to use you. <laughs> right? What's he teaching Moses? He's teaching Moses to be dependent upon him. That our value, our usefulness to God is not based on our strength or skill. It's based on our dependence upon God, which is really cool. So my body reminds me of my dependence. We have weaknesses. We're finite. Our days are numbered. Uh, we, God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 is a passage you're familiar with where Paul has an infirmity. He asks the Lord to take it away. The Lord says no. So he says, I will rather boast in my infirmity because when I am weak, then I am strong. God receives the glory in Paul's weakness. So our bodies remind us of our dependence upon God. They remind us to look forward to heaven. Romans 8, 23. Even now, we groan in our flesh. For the redemption of our body. So God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, but we will not always be dust. 1 Corinthians 15 says that these dusty frames will be changed from mortal flesh to immortal flesh. And honestly, I don't know what that is, but it's not dust. It doesn't fade away. It's like Jesus. And 1 Corinthians 15 sort of leaves it as a little bit of a mystery as to what our immaterial, glorious bodies will be like and what they'll be made of. All we know is they're different from our dusty frames right now. And so my body reminds me to look forward to heaven. My body is not my body after all. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? For you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. My body is not my body after all. This is another way that God just redeems something that has fallen. He purchased me. He wanted my body. (laughs) That's kind of cool. How often do we not want our bodies and forget that God bought this body? He wanted it when I didn't want it. The things that I'm dissatisfied with about myself or whatever. God wanted it. He wanted my flesh, purchased it with the blood of his son, so that I would glorify him. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, which is the Lord's. It's his. So we use what strength we have. We use what abilities we have. We use our physical frame, our fingers, our eyes, our mouths for him. Um, Yeah, for him. God meant for us to have a particular body. It is a gift. And even in the brokenness of our bodies, we trust God is using it for his glory. He purchased it with his blood and he's making his name great through my weakness. Whatever my weakness might be, it's different for all of us. And it's for his glory. Pretty cool. So though I am not identified by my body, it's temporary. I'll receive a new one. It is part of my existence in this life and how God glorifies himself through us. So anyway, there you go. Some ideas 
maybe a better title would be, In Christ I Am Not Merely These Things. They are still indeed part of our existence, but Christ, as you've seen hopefully tonight, has redeemed these things and given them value beyond what we could have imagined, and our identity in Christ is most important.